Welcome everybody to today's B-Side. We're going to be doing a deep, deep dive into the topic of neoliberalism. I've been wanting to cover neoliberalism as a a theme, a historical moment, a theoretical object, a political economic phenomenon, if you will, for quite some time. And I've been waiting for the right person and the right set of books and articles to come along in order to do that. And I think I've found, I think I've found those things. Uh, This is going to be part one of a two-part series. This one features Ray Kiley. He's written a book recently. It's called The Neoliberal Paradox. We're going to be discussing that book at length, doing a deep, deep dive into this stuff. It's it's one of those classic DPS episodes you're going to have to listen to two or three times to really wrap your heads around, but those are the fun ones. Anyway, part two is going to be coming out in a week or two. That features a chat with Aaron Major. He wrote a really great piece for Catalyst Journal. It's called Ideas Without Power. So if you guys are Catalyst subscribers, read up on that piece. Be prepared for it. That interview is going to be coming out in a week or two. Not sure if I'm going to make that an A or a B side, but either way, you guys are patrons. You'll hear it no matter what I end up deciding. So everybody look forward to that as well. And before we get to the interview, just a quick pitch and a shout out to the patrons who have been chatting it up on the discourse forum. That forum is up and running. We're starting to get things going, getting to know one another a little bit, chopping it up, having some good debates. I've really enjoyed that interaction, and the more of you on that forum, the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, debates that you'd like to raise about any of the A-sides, the B-sides, or whatever, if there's a news item that you'd like to comment on or get my thoughts on or talk to the patrons about, bring it up. So everybody head over to that discourse forum today. Say hello, introduce yourself. And uh, chop it up. Shouts out to the people over there on that forum that I've chatted it up with over the past couple of weeks. I've really enjoyed your input so far. Let's keep that up. All right. Without further ado, on with the interview with Ray Kylie. Everybody just Once again, joining us on the line today is Ray Kylie. Ray is a professor of politics at Queen Mary University of London. And he is the author of many, many books. The most recent that is uh, most topical for our conversation today is titled The Neoliberal Paradox. That is out uh, last year. It is uh, fresh off the press, paperback version, uh, presumably coming later this summer. Really excited to chat with Ray about this. Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society, Ray Kiley. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm very glad to be here. So you are a prolific scholar and author, and you have uh, many books. I've been following your work for quite some time. People who have been listening to the Dead Punnett Society for the last couple of years to try to place you in the scholarly tradition or terrain, if you will, of of previous guests, it would be similar, most similar, I would say, in style and approach to uh, Leo Panitch, who has been on the show a couple of times. You have your own interpretations of obviously neoliberal globalization and international relations. But for uh, those of you who haven't spent long hours in graduate seminar rooms, uh, pouring over dusty books, that'll give you a little idea of uh, the way that where, where Ray's writings and provocations sort of set in. I've been looking to have a series on neoliberalism for quite some time, but I brought Ray Kiley on the show to talk about the kind of material and historical aspects 
of neoliberalism as it has unfolded throughout history. So let's begin there, Ray. The book, The Neoliberal Paradox, kind of gives away the thesis, I think, right off the bat. And let's let's spell out this paradox for people because it's it's quite it's it's fascinating. You're right. Neoliberalism's paradox can be captured between this gap between the spontaneity and the constructivism, which makes neoliberalism so difficult to define. So let's start there. Define for our audience and for myself this very difficult formulation of this neoliberal paradox that you start with. Okay. Well, although you said that I'm interested in the uh the material as well, the ideational. I'm going to start by talking about the ideational, and I do think the ideational was very important. I'll come to some problems with that, but in terms of explaining the paradox, we have to focus on neoliberal ideas and think about how these are played out in the real world. But essentially, my argument that one way of putting it is neoliberalism, like liberalism, can't live with the state and can't live without the state. Now, that's true, but what neoliberalism promises is, if you like, a pristine market, a pure market. So the fact that it can't live without the state is a source of weakness for neoliberalism because it's always relying on the state in terms of state reforms, in terms of regulation and so on. But at the same time, when things go wrong, it's got a ready-made scapegoat. And the ready-made scapegoat is, of course, the state. So we can see this in terms of the financial crisis of uh, 2008. How did how did, if you like, the libertarian right and the neoliberal right in the United States, for example, explain the crisis? Well, they said it was central banks or they said it was too much intervention in the housing market. Even though, if you see the uh, minority report, the official uh, in congressional investigation into the financial crisis, but the minority report, which is different, you, you had some libertarians uh, who actually argued that it was basically intervention in the housing market and it was basically... Uh, it was the Democrats trying to get ethnic minorities on the housing market. A few years before, some of those very same people had said, in fact, the state had distorted the housing market and had artificially restricted access to the housing market. Then, once the crisis, they'd actually artificially expanded it. This is a classic example of using the state as a scapegoat. So it can't live with the state and can't live without the state, but it has a very useful scapegoat for when things go wrong. So it sounds to me like at the heart of this neoliberal paradox is, as you as you rightly mentioned, certainly not ignoring the ideational aspects of neoliberalism, but bringing them into relation and oftentimes the way that they uh, contradict the material realities or the ter- material, let's see, administration of neoliberalism. So let's backtrack to the, the birth of, of neoliberalism. You, you, you produce a really fascinating history here where you start – Pre-World War One, really in the at the heart of the beginnings of the pro-democracy movement throughout Europe, the extension of the franchise, the collective struggle for social and political and economic rights and, and sort of bourgeois liberal democratic societies, and that neoliberalism should be seen as a way, as an early response to these kind of collectivist pressures. Let's start there to kind of uh, set, set the tone for this discussion. Yeah. Okay. Well, you said pre-World War One. I. I mean, it, uh, the movement as a movement really starts pre-World War Two, but you can see some of the ideas pre, pre-World War One and, and beyond that. I mean, in the book, I mean, I talk about different strands of neoliberalism. I talk about German auto-liberalism, which in English, there's not a great deal of work on. It, it's growing at the moment. 
Werner Bonefeld, uh, who is German, uh, has, has done some really valuable work on that. Obviously, the Austrian school, well, we know a lot about the Austrian school. Chicago, but I think Chicago is much more important post-45. What I didn't really do in the book, but I did hint at, uh, I mentioned French neoliberalism, and uh, I didn't go into much detail, not least because I don't know very much about that. But there is also Italian neoliberalism, uh, and we can see this in terms of the European Union at the moment. Perhaps we'll talk about Brexit later. Um, but So there is an Italian tradition as well, and I think some of that can be rooted in some some work by people like Pareto. One of the first people to be described as a neoliberal, albeit in a slightly different way, was one of Pareto's friends and colleagues, Pantaleone, who in the late 19th century was one of the first people to be described as a neoliberal. What I think unite, I, I think neoliberalism in many ways, although Hayek says something very different in his appendix to the Constitution of Liberty, but I beg to differ with his characterization of conservatism, and I'm, my characterization of conservatism is very similar to Corey Robbins uh, in The Reactionary Mind, is it's essentially I think conservatism is about a fear of democracy, it's about a fear of collectivism, and it's what, how do we maintain elite rule? That's not just, we can't just see that as a class project in the, in the Marxist sense. They just believe that some people are fit to govern because they have virtue. And I think that's what, what that's what really inspires neoliberals in terms of the German neoliberals, uh, the ordo liberals, and, and Hayek above all else. Who I think essentially is why he sees Keynesianism, socialism, uh, even fascism. I mean, he's completely wrong in his characterization of fascism. I think, but he sees them all as uh, the, all these collectivist things as leading to a kind of tyranny of the majority to go back to kind of people like John Stuart Mill and, and particularly for Hayek, Tocqueville. And the tyranny of the majority is the idea, if you like, to, we can want to go back to Locke, which I try to do in the book, is is the propertyless trying to impose their will on the, on the uh, propertied minority. And in a sense, to put it crudely, I think what neoliberalism and a lot of interwar conservative thought are advocating is a tyranny of the minority. And that's what Pareto. That's what in that's that was the link between Pareto's political sociology and his economics. So I think all these things that you know, it, it's basically this fear of democracy, fear of the mob, if you want to call it that, you, or fear of socialism, is essentially what inspires these people. So it's about trying to to maintain what they perceive to be some kind of liberal economic order, but you need politics and you need the state to do that. And what you get, I think, in the Ordo liberals and in the Austrians is essentially an authoritarian liberalism. It's, it's, it's an alternative to fascism, a different right-wing uh, approach, but it is basically not democratic. It's not even liberal democratic. It's very suspicious of democracy. And we all know about Hayek and what he says years later about Chile and all these things. So it's, I think that neoliberalism has its roots in kind of a search for an authoritarian and undemocratic alternative to try to preserve the market order. This concludes your free teaser of this week's B-Side. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today to hear the rest of this episode and to double your DPS pleasure each week.